Thought Leadership from PwC. So when I talk about it in this context, whenever I go out and talk to clients about this, what I what I stress is it's very important to move past the point of thinking about ESG as a set of compliance obligations or a set of metrics on which you're being judged or anything that's an internal goal. Think of ESG as a label for a force in the marketplace. Hello, we're back talking ESG, this time with a focus on sustainable business value. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. With a virtual deluge of ESG disclosure and reporting requirements coming into play around the world, it's easy enough to begin viewing sustainability as nothing more than a compliance and reporting obligation, something that must be done, but that in and of itself is not creating value. But we believe that perspective is limited. Our guest today is here to discuss how leading companies and their boards are viewing sustainability as an opportunity to reflect on the issues that are core to their business's value creation, and how integrating these issues into their strategy creates sustainable, long-term value. Back today on the podcast, I'm happy to welcome Jamie Gamble, a PwC Managing Director whose experience spans some of the most transformative changes in corporate governance over the last two decades. Jamie brings a wealth of insight into the ways that companies can navigate the complex and ever-changing demands of doing business in today's environment. With that, here is my conversation with Jamie. So Jamie, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on and to have you back actually in person. And I thought it'd be helpful before we get into the meat of today's episode, just to take a step back and share a little bit of your background with our listeners and kind of get the angle you'll be coming at this topic from. Sure. Thanks. And it's great to be back on, Heather. And it's great to do this in person this time as opposed to over over video. Yes. Um, so I've been at PwC a little over a year now. And in my prior life, I was a partner at a big law firm in New York City. And I was a litigation partner. And mostly what I did was um, what I like to call crisis counseling. So I worked with companies that were in the middle of some sort of, of an issue and helped them work their way out of it. And one of the key pieces of that is thinking about corporate governance, um, looking backwards and asking, is was there more oversight I could have done? And looking forward, what's the right structure of oversight? So whatever it is, doesn't happen again. Um, came to PwC really to, to put that interest into a more proactive form. And so what I've been doing here with a lot of other people is building out a framework to help companies um, incorporate what, what I'll call ESG, and I want to get to what I think ESG really is in a second, but to incorporate ESG into their uh long-term strategic value planning so that ESG simply becomes a part of the strategy as opposed to being its own separate silo. That's the the, most of the work that I've been doing here. All right. So you made a point (laughs) that you have your own definition of ESG. And I always find this funny because this is not the first time this has come up on the podcast. And as I've said on prior podcasts, I found it so interesting because in the summer, last summer, 2022, when the SEC came out with its proposal for investment managers and asset managers about ESG funds, they also declined to define ESG. And it's sort of, you know it when you see it. But what is your definition of ESG? Or what do you mean when you're talking about it in this context? So w- when I talk about it in this context, whenever I go out and talk to clients about this, what I, what I stress is 
it's very important to move past the point of thinking about ESG as a set of compliance obligations or a set of metrics on which you're being judged or anything that's an internal goal. Think of ESG as a label for a force in the marketplace. So the reality is what's happened is um, an important group of stakeholders, in fact, almost all the important groups of stakeholders have announced essentially there are a new set, uh, an additional set of things on which they want companies to perform and be accountable that companies didn't have to use to think about as much. Um, and so the, the best way to think about it is there's a lot of survey data. We have survey data that says this, but, but it's backed up by research from lots of other places that says 80 plus percent of people would rather work for, buy from, or invest in a company that shares their personal values uh, and that acts on those values. And we can see at least in the investor space that this is, is actually it's, it's being enacted because the fastest growing sector of the funds market is ESG linked funds. Uh, I think the number now is 18 plus trillion dollars in those funds. So there's a real cost of capital issue. At least anecdotally, when every company that I talk to, when I talk about this um, on the recruiting side and the retention side and the employee morale side, there's simply no question that, that ESG issues are important, particularly for the, the group that skews younger. Um, I think on the purchase side, the data is a little harder to come by, but I think at least in some sectors, we're seeing that as well. And so what, what you, the way I like to tell people is think of ESG as something external to your company. It's a demand that exists in the market and a demand that exists in the market on new things is an opportunity for you as a company to differentiate yourself for, for competitors. So I would say that ESG is the external force. The, the goal, as always, is to build sustainable value in your company. And so the strategic challenge is how do I respond to the new force in the marketplace in a way that builds sustainable value in my company? Well, it's interesting when you put it in that context, because you mentioned compliance. And one of the things I've been doing over the past couple of days before we've been recording is talking to some of our tax people, talking about some of their new compliance requirements and OECD pillar two, tax transparency and otherwise. And then we've been talking about on the podcast, all the ESG uh, sustainability reporting requirements, the ISSB, CSRD, et cetera. We're going to be doing an episode about the carbon border adjustment mechanism in the EU. Like the list just goes on and on. And I have a bunch of other acronyms I could throw out. And so I do think as I'm starting to meet with, or as I'm meeting with companies more and more, it is almost just being viewed as like an overwhelming compliance exercise. And so from a mindset perspective, how do you see companies sort of shifting from that this is an obligation to this is an opportunity? So I think in practice, it's we're in the early days of this kind of a shift. But I think the part of the reason that it's so important, so I think a couple things are happening for stuff. One is interest in the the relationship of ESG to the long-term prospects of the business is increasing for a variety of reasons. One reason is that I think asset managers are getting more sophisticated in the questions that they ask. So they're, they're, they're driving this, uh, to a significant degree, at least some subset of activist investors are also getting more sophisticated in how they look at performance as opposed to promises on this stuff. Um, but I, and some of it is just the maturity of businesses, right? As businesses start to get and understand things to 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 a, a greater degree, which is clearly happening now in the, in the ESG space, um, they start to translate what they're doing into the language that that ultimately they have to look through look at, which is the finance the, the finance function has to start to understand this in numbers in order for this to to, to to in order for it to scale and to be a sustainable thing within a company. 
And I also think, frankly, the politics, um, the fact that ESG has been drawn into our current politics and mm-hmm. given the state of our politics has raised the public profile of how and why companies are focusing on whatever issues they're focusing on, whether it's climate, whether it's diversity, whether it's human rights in their supply chain, whether it's connectivity for technology companies, whatever it may be. Um, and and we can maybe get to this a little bit later, but but the the key to answering most of those questions is to be able to step back and say, we're not engaging in the investments we are in items that fall under that ESG label for any reason other than the fact we've looked through them, we've identified them as opportunities for us to help build a thriving business long-term. And so in order to do that, you have to build the structure and the muscle that's necessary to, to actually make those changes. So you made a point there, and I think you were alluding to this in your final point, but you made a point that asset managers are getting better about performance versus promises and looking at that. And yet, how do you really tease apart, well, is this performance because I stopped using child labor, or is this performance because of all these other things I may be doing as a company? Like It all is so interwound that this just seems like another risk that you're managing or again, another opportunity that you may be looking at. So I think it is a risk, right? I mean, you know, it, it, in every company, one aspect of understanding how something affects your bottom line is to look at the risk. And that includes regulatory risk, by the way. So what you said before about the proliferation of different standards and all the various things companies have to deal with from an actual compliance perspective is all very real. And, and you have to do those things. And they're an element of your business, no different than any of your financial reporting obligations are. Um, and risk is also very real, uh, beyond regulatory risk. You have a lot of other kinds of risk that come in these various areas. Uh, and so you have to manage those as well. And I think it's, it's becoming more and more possible to put actual values on dollar values on some of those risks, which is very helpful, I think, in terms from a risk management perspective. But I think the flip side of the risk is, you know, what's the risk of doing nothing, right? Um, and, and so there's a way that that's, that's how you value the upside. What's the, what's the risk if I don't do anything? But I think the, the specific question that you asked, um, is how to, how do I think investment managers can actually tease out whether people are performing on a particular metric, whether they're performing overall, what is, what does this mean? And I think the answer there is, is, is we're also early days mm-hmm. there. What I would say is happening though, is that the people who asset managers are assigning to this internally from an analytics perspective and also assigning to go to the meetings with board members, with senior leadership are more sophisticated than they used to be right in the early days. They kind of were checking off. And I, I would say what I have heard from a number of people is mm-hmm. in the early days, people were kind of checking off a list and I don't mean this in any disingenuous way. I think they were doing it in good faith. It was just, everybody was learning. We've been doing that for a while now. Right. And so now it's easier for people to look and ask the question, you know, not, um, not just, you know, have you made a commitment, um, a, a net zero commitment, for example, um, but actually saying, okay, you know, what have you invested in reaching your net zero commitment? What's your pathway there? What are your interim milestones? Those are the kinds of questions now that are, that people have started to build into their, their, their book of questions that they want to be running through because they understand that the, the, the portfolio from the investor perspective, the long-term portfolio value in looking at these things. And again, this is a stress of the fact that these are about, this is about building value. It's not just about checking a box because you think you need to Right. the, the reason that 
major asset managers are interested in this is because the people whose money they manage are interested in this and it matters to them. And for them, that means it's a part of how you build and keep your business is by responding to the things your customers want. So I think as they get more sophisticated about asking questions, part of the reason they're getting more sophisticated and, and learning and, and, and drilling deeper is because the actual long-term portfolio value isn't in the promises, it's in the performance. And so I think that's why they're getting better. And I think there's not one answer to the question you asked is, is they're doing it in a variety of ways because there isn't, there, there, ESG is not a monolith. I think maybe the single most important thing I would say to companies when they think about what ESG is, mm -hmm. is exactly that. Recognize it isn't a monolith. That when you think about ESG, it's got to be your ESG. And that means what matters to your stakeholders. I'm also, as I'm not fond of the word ESG, for goals internally, I think it's a useful label for yeah. the external market force. I'm also not fond of the word stakeholders. Um, not because I, I think because it's become a little buzzwordy and we use it a lot and nobody's entirely sure what they mean when they say it anymore. So I like to say, refer to the community of people who create and sustain the value of your company. That means employees. It means customers. It means investors. It means the communities you operate in. It can mean your regulators, depending on the business that you're in. Um, and, and that, that phrase is what stakeholders means. Um, it's so. a little easier to say stakeholders than if I got this right, the community of people who create, wait, say it again. The community of people who mm -hmm. create and sustain the value of your company. I, I forgot the sustain word, which I should have remembered given its sustainability. But yes, <laughs> stakeholders might be a useful shorthand, but I agree with you. It is a little buzzwordy. It is. So, but, so what I often will do is I will try to refer to the stakeholder, try to use that long phrase once. <laughs> And then keep referring to your stakeholder community or your corporate community. Oh, because then it's more inclusive. Yeah, than and, and, and in, a, in, a, in, a, in a serious way, I think one of the reasons I really like the phrase, at least to, to get people um, acclimated to, yeah. is that first and foremost, a company is a community of people. Mm -hmm. And that's how most of us experience the place we work. It's a community of people that you go to work with. You have a common set of goals and things that you're and, and tasks, but you're first and foremost a group of people. And, and when we're talking about ESG, what you're really talking about is what does that community of people care about? What do they want their company to be? Because it's doing that is how you build non-transactional relationships with those people. And the truth is in, in the current business world in which we live, those non-transactional relationships with your stakeholder community, it's where the vast majority of the value of every company is. So I'm thinking about our audience, which is primarily, you know, finance, mm -hmm. controllers, uh, PwC people, and thinking they are probably maybe listening a little skeptically, but also thinking about their own role, yep. which is going to be coming at this from a reporting side. So we talked about compliance and the fact it's almost an overwhelming compliance burden right now or could feel like it. But what role do you see then reporting? Because it's all nice and good to talk about what the community wants and those things. But then Putting that into the action is one thing, but then also measuring the action is another. So where what's the role of reporting here? Well, let me let me actually flip that a little okay. and talk about the role of governance first, because that's really where my expertise yep. lies. And then we can go to And then I, I can I'll connect that to reporting. Um so we we have there's a lot of incoming requests to us and to our governance insight center and to to through our partners um at the board level and the audit committee level to know more about how the company is addressing all the various things that fall under that ESG label. 
Some of that has to do with the politics. Some of it is just a realization that this stuff is important and, and, and they want to have a better handle on it. Um, I think, so one of the things that we do with people is to help them develop what we refer to as the sustainable value book. And, um, however you think about it, it's, it's, it's a model. It's, it's a concept as much as it is a physical deliverable. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's sort of think about it for the finance folks in the audience. Think of it sort of like the, the, the book of board gets right before an M&A transaction closes, right? That's sort of what it's patterned mm -hmm. after, to be honest with you. But it, the, the way we visualize it, it has four sections, none of which are rocket science, but all of which are really important. The first section, which is, is really the most important one and requires a deep process in the company to do well, um, but you can start with it no matter where you are because it helps you understand where you are. And that's just to write a narrative. It's a three to five page real memo narrative. And I'm a lawyer, not a consultant. <laughs> and so I'm not a fan of PowerPoints as a general matter. But I will say that having spent a lot of time around directors in my life and, and including recently, um, there's a number of directors. I One of the most common phrases at the last Stanford Directors College was, how do we stop the parade of PowerPoints? Mm -hmm. Give me something to read. Give me something basically. to read. Some, yeah. something that, 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 so anyways, uh, the, the three to five page memo, what it needs to say, it's a strategy memo. Think of it not as a sustainability document mm -hmm. or investor relations document, um, but think of it as the way the people who run the business would talk to each other about these things. So it needs to say, what are our ESG priorities? Um, what are the concrete goals we're setting and the metrics we're, we're, we're setting to act on those priorities? What are the interim milestones we're going to measure to make sure we're having appropriate progress? How did we set them? How did we come to use these as our goals? Why do we believe meeting those goals and milestones will be accretive to the long-term value of the company? And that's a critical point and needs to be in here. And then finally, how do we know that the data we're relying on to make all these decisions is accurate? Right. So that's that's what the book should say. Now, I think of this as a management document first and foremost, and then between the board, the general counsel's mm -hmm. office, the corporate secretary, the management itself, they have to decide how much of it makes sense to go to the board in terms of the level of detail that's most useful for the board performance function. So I think of it primarily as a management document, but it can be the source material for board reporting up. So I think it's very useful in that way. And just knowing that you have a process to do that um, is is really important by the way there's four sections of the book the second the rest are just supportive right of the, of the narrative section two is dashboards so for every goal and milestone you have your red yellow green picture of where you are and a little bit of data that lets somebody on a quick glance do the managing the third section is what i call the statements grid um and it's really just that's really just about message discipline most people have not yet put esg through their disclosure controls function and so what what the, it's really just a grid column one says lists every single statement about ESG made during the prior year. It's an annual, this book is an annual yes. document. Um, column two says who said it. Column three says where it was published. And column four says who is responsible for making sure it's true. The primary value of doing that the first time is once you've done it once, your lawyers and disclosure people are going to turn and look at you and say, this list is way too long. Mm -hmm. um, and that'll help you get good discipline, yes. message discipline and control. And then the fourth section of the book is just the data appendix. So every organization in the company that's doing operational work that relates to any of the goals has to produce a packet of information that is sufficient to support whatever's said in the first three sections of the book. So now you get your big fat deck, just like you would in an M&A document, and it First off, it's documentation. That's an important thing in terms of making sure 
You've documented the fact the company has done its diligence on these issues. That's a, in, in the world we live in, as litigious as it is and all the things that are happening, that's an important piece of it. But frankly, producing the book and our experience of, of, of working with companies on this so far is producing the book itself really helps people to get a handle around and, and uh, what's happening. I will say CFOs, in my experience, when I talk about this, um, have tended to be among the people most interested in it. I mean, their, their point of view is, look, whether el- anybody else in the organization wants this stuff and needs it, I need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where the regulatory piece is really driving and where disclosure really comes into this. Mm-hmm. Wait, it- I'm going to pause you. Sure. Let's come back to disclosure. Yeah. Since you t- <laughs> now you've gotten me intrigued in your topic and then I'm going to come bring it back. So I can see, and again, looking at it from a finance lens, you said CFOs are all among the ones who really like this book. And I can picture just all the benefits of having this data, gathering the data, all those different things. So from a practical point of view, then it also seems, very daunting the first time to create something like this document. And so who from the company typically do you see spearheading this involved in this? Like how from a, let's say, you know, practice or or process perspective, what are some of the practices you see that are helpful? So let me tell you how we do it. Okay. Usually the answer to your question is that, that so far the experience, and this is early days. I yes. don't want to give the impression I've done this a thousand times. Yeah, this is but it's still very powerful. Lot. Yeah. Um, but I'd say, so it's the sustainability function where companies have a direct sustainability function that kind of leads the charge with us, where, where, where we're doing it to help. Um, and that makes sense. But I think it's critically important for people to understand how cross-disciplinary this work mm-hmm. has to be because the data lives in a lot of different places in companies. It's, and, and if we have time, I'll do my, my socks analogy um, point to scare people a little bit, but um, in, in a good way, I hope. <laughs> but um, the way we actually do it is we sit down and we interview the senior leadership of the company. Um, and that takes time, of course, because getting on everybody's schedule is tough. Um, but you actually sit down and do interviews. The way, the only way to write the narrative about what the company's priorities are is to ask the people who set the priorities what their priorities mm-hmm. are and what they want them to be mm-hmm. and how do they know what they are. And, and if they don't know, then the process of going through the interviews and asking the questions can really help to start to get everybody to help get everybody on the same page about where they want to go. Um, so there, it, the actual process is really a pretty useful function. I think you can get the dashboards designed and built um, to feed, to give you the oversight capacity on the narrative um, manually, which is, you know, if you, when you need to, like you can do with most data. I think the reality is after that, there comes a point where there needs to be either the finance function needs to take the lead on the data generation piece, or it needs to work in parallel with, um, the folks who are on the sustainability side to make sure the data is flowing up in, in a meaningful, because over time you're going to need to have this data on some sort of a real time basis, and it's going to need to be trustworthy data. Um, and, and again, this is where reporting and the, requ- the, the, the regulatory requirements really fit into mm-hmm. this because in addition to needing it to manage the business well on these issues, you're going to need it because you're going to have to be externally transparent. Um, and frankly, you, even apart from the regulation, you need it to be externally transparent and to be accurate because one of the ways you do generate value for the business out of this is to let your stakeholder community see transparently what you're doing so that you can build that relationship with them that helps to build value and builds resiliency in your workforce and all the various things that you want. 
Well, also, it sounds like from listening to you, if we think about a company that is attacking, I'm going to say ESG, you know, you have your sustainability people, now you've put together your cross-functional team, you're starting to figure out how I'm going to comply with all these regulations, but then you're, you're missing that I'm going to call it the narrative of how this actually fits into what the company is doing, because then you're just taking a bunch of data and reporting it. And I think what you are saying, you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding you, but it sounds like what you're saying is actually take a step back. What is our narrative? Why are we doing this? What is important to us? Okay. That's, let's get that all set. Then we can take all the data and all these, this required data and everything else. How does that fit in and, and where are we with these metrics and otherwise, and how does that fit in with this story narrative that we're telling as a company? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think in anything you do, right, anytime you're, you don't want to ever just be reporting numbers for numbers sake. You always want them to be reflective of how the people who run the business think about the way they run the business and what they think is important. And obviously you have to meet your regulatory right, obligations, right. but you want to do that in a way that's consistent with how you really think about the way the business works. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a lawyer, not an accountant, but I'm pretty sure that's accounting rule 101 yes. is, is make sure the numbers reflect how the people who run the business think about the business. Well, you have to first follow generally accepted accounting principles, <laughs> and then you can, can layer in perspectives. So. I to, full disclaimers. That is not, <laughs> yes. is not not my area of expertise. So. Um, but but I, I, yes, I think you're exactly right. And the reason it's three to five pages, by the way, um, is just long life experience has taught me that if you can't reduce a topic to three to five yeah. pages, you probably don't understand it well enough to really manage it. It's just, it, and again, it's a bandwidth thing, right? They're, they're like, there are people in the organization who on a particular narrow topic are going to know the numbers incredibly mm-hmm. deeply. But when you have to know across the organization what's happening, you have to be able to synthesize that information to something that's understandable. And that's why the, I think the narrative structure is the right structure because, you know, again, I'm, I'm a very strong believer that for the most part, people understand the world in stories mm-hmm. and, and writing a narrative is writing a story. And here it's writing a factual story about what you're actually doing and why you're doing it. Um, but I think, I, I, I think that's the goal and, and it should inform the way you do your, your regulatory reporting um, and I think I hope make it easier mm-hmm. because I believe it does. If you know, if people know why they're doing what they're doing, they're going to do it better, um, and they'll also be more able to spot breaks or inconsistencies in the in the way things are happening because they'll understand what purpose it's it's intended to serve. Well, also, I mean, you made a point. I think it was the third section is where you're going to accumulate your goals, and in many companies, you know, they're sort of all over the place. They have a lot of different ones, and then now with many of these reporting frameworks, there's a requirement if you have targets and goals mm-hmm. to disclose them. And so, again, you are almost getting ahead of yourself if you're gathering the goals for the first time for when you're going to be reporting them externally. You want to start with all this internal reporting and where are you as a company, it just feels much more meaningful, powerful. And to going back to your original point, if you're thinking about value, just giving external people information about you that you don't understand yourself is not creating value. I think that's right. And I think, you know, the, the point about statements that are made sort of being goals in and of themselves, that's really important. That's mm-hmm. a really important point because if what you find is that there are statements being made about what the company's going to do or not do, um, that aren't that, that don't actually appear in your narrative is what your goals and your milestones are. 
Well, then you have to start asking yourself the question, do I need to walk that back? Do I mm-hmm. need to say to the world, look, we've set our priorities now really clearly. We've got concrete goals. We've got measurable stuff. We can really be accountable on these things. Some, you know, and, and to find a, a polite way to say about some of the other stuff, you know, look, these are aspirations we've stated in the past, but we're going to, we're going to tell you much more concretely, this is what we plan to be accountable for. Um, and we'll keep these other things in mind and we'll try, but those aren't, don't think of those as goals. Think of those as maybe aspirations, the stuff that it's a goal, we're telling you it's a goal. And that's a way of also getting some discipline about, on that. And again, from the CFOs, the accounting functions seat, right? It, it, it gives them more confidence and comfort that the things on which they have to report, they have a clear picture of exactly what those are. And they're not going to get blindsided and say, well, wait, what about this thing? Um, where they don't have a system in place to collect data at a level of accuracy with the kind of provenance you need in order to be auditable, all the things you need um, in order to really report on it in a way that makes them comfortable. So let me be skeptical for a moment because I think many of our listeners will be thinking, well, except for my company, we already have a sustainability report. So we must already be doing this. How does the, the, something like the exercise you're describing fit in with a company that is already doing sustainability reporting? And maybe they would argue, well, I have my story. Right. So what I, w- I would say two things. The first is picking up on the, the, the phrase that you used. If, you, if you're CFO or chief accounting officer, is saying, well, we have a sustainability report. We must already be doing this stuff. So this is the lawyer in me. Anytime you answer a question, we must, it actually means I don't really know, but I expect fair. it must be true. Very fair. But, but it's actually a really important point, right? Because I think um, as we move into a more regulated area, as we move into an area where investors are demanding more, as we move into an area where your customers are going to demand more. And by the way, this is a really important point for people who sell primarily to other businesses right? The consumer data is hard. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we hear all the time now is, well, my business customers are demanding this kind of information from me or this kind of performance Mm -hmm. from me because they have their own desire to make certain kinds of reports. So um, in some ways, people who are selling to business as opposed to direct, even though the consumers are the one driving the ultimate demand, the people who are selling to businesses need to be a little further out in front largely because the businesses to whom they're selling are themselves getting organized around data to try to make sure they're able to make the kind of claims and statements to their stakeholder community that they really want to make. But I would say the, the, the second part of your answer is, look, a lot of people who've got sustainability reports and who have advanced function in this area are doing a great job, right? I think what you will find, which you will be very hard-pressed to find in any sustainability report, is a discussion of really at least one and probably, well, at least one, probably two, and maybe three parts of what goes in that initial narrative, right? mm-hmm. which, which is really the key thing to think about. One is you will find almost nobody who says, well, this is why the the sustainability priorities we've set and we're acting on will be accretive to the long-term value mm-hmm. of the company. Right? Almost nobody is saying that. And there's a reason for that. And I'm sure that there are folks listening to this podcast going, yeah, there's a reason for that. It's because it's really hard to do. <laughs> um, and I would say, by the way, you know, Yes, it's really hard to do. It's not impossible to do. There are definitely tools out there. We have some. We're, we're working on this with people now. And I don't want to minimize the fact that it's difficult, but I want to say we, we keep track of how a lot of very complex and difficult things affect the bottom line of a company over time. Um, we can do this. 
Um, the second thing that I think is in some, but probably not so many of the sustainability reports is how do I know the data on which I'm relying to say all this is accurate? Mm-hmm. Now, that is not to say that it isn't most of the time quite accurate, um, but the sorts of systems people have in place to be sure are a lot less robust usually in at least some parts of the sustainability function than than they are in the finance side, of course, where they're sort of at their apex. Um, the third piece that I think is in some, but probably not as many sustainability reports as you might imagine is that how did we come to these as Mm -hmm. goals, right? There's a lot of people who announce a net zero goal and say, well, we've announced a net zero goal because we believe that climate change is important, is, is, is an important issue. Um, and we think we need to try to do something to help address it. And that may be entirely true, but but when I'm talking about that from a, a, a sustainability value book, a, a management document that can inform board discussions, um, that how is nowhere near detailed enough, right? You, you need to say, all right, who in the organization, like what's the line of decision-making in the organization that this went through to come to a decision point and say, we're making a net zero pledge? Because when a, when a company says that, it needs to be saying, we're making a net zero pledge. We're making it because we've thought about it. We believe it's the right thing to do for our business and for our stakeholder community. Um, and we believe we can get there. And we have in our we have set up a plan to get to it, right? Because, because again, if you thought about that, you wouldn't make a statement about what you think your business will do in the future. If you haven't vetted that statement very seriously and made a plan for getting there, and that should be true in every kind of promise you make for your business, which in a sense goes without saying, but doesn't always go without saying in this space sometimes. And, and, and I think often it's it's for really good reasons for people who genuinely making statements thinking we should do this or we know right. we want to do this. We are committed where, you know, it, this comes in a lot of areas. It comes on climate. It comes on diversity a lot. People are saying, of course, this is something that and, and it genuinely is really important to them. And they understand intellectually and even viscerally in their business, why having a, a diverse workforce is incredibly important to them, why it makes for a better company. Um, but from a business strategy perspective, sitting down and getting that put together in front of you in a way that you can say, yeah, this is this is my why. And it, it, it goes in whatever form we as a company normally put this sort of stuff in. And I'm comfortable we've built out sort of how we're going to do it, what it really means to say we want to be a diverse company to us um, and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's it's systematizing it in a way and how it fits into the business's overall strategy and also looking at execution and how are we going to get there and being sure that the people who ultimately run the business are comfortable that whoever's doing the planning to say, this is how we get there, that they are great. They agree that, that yeah, yes, we as a senior leadership team agree that your plan is good and we think we can get there that way and we'll monitor it. Well, and I guess from listening to you, and I actually thought you were going to answer with a, a, an answer around governance and prominence and otherwise, and, and you did hit on that because listening, I'm going to way oversimplify, but if you think in, in some companies, at least the sustainability report still is sort of, I'll call it to the side. So you have your main business strategy, you have your risk identification, everything else, and then you have your sustainability group off doing what it does. And maybe again, now I mentioned financial people and otherwise are involved. What you're saying is that's really pulling that into the mainstream of what the company is doing and saying, okay, this is a business imperative now for all these different reasons. And so it can't be a sideline 
anymore, but we need to manage it the same way we're managing any other important issue for the company. Is that a fair? That's exactly right. I think that that's exactly right. And and I'll, I'll, to go back in a sense to your first question, just for a second, yeah. um, you know, we talked about why these things are important and I recognize there's skepticism from some people. I, I, it's not really deep skepticism. Almost everybody that I talk to, um, will, will, even if it's sometimes grudging, but mostly it isn't, we'll say, yeah, look, I recognize it from, from an, certainly from an investor point of view, right. Performing on these issues is important. And, and equally, certainly from an employee point of view, like having a, taking a position on social issues that are important to my employees and my potential employees is incredibly important to me building a, 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 you know, a robust, resilient, um, employee base. And, you know, in the world we live in today, in the U.S. and Europe, and in, in, in most of the developed world, that that's going to be a long-term, ongoing issue. Is going to be recruiting because most of those populations are shrinking. Um, and I think the third piece, which is not often enough talked about, is that the people driving this, from a purchase perspective as well, the people driving all this are skew skew younger, mm-hmm. right? and and there's no indication they're going to get less interested over time. But what is going to happen over time is that over the next 15 to 30 years, that same group of people who's driving this is going to be on the receiving end of the largest wealth transfer in human history. As the baby boomers start to pass their wealth on to the next generation, those people are going to drive investment priorities. They're going to drive buying priorities even more so than they do now. Um, And it's a big generation. Yeah, that's definitely a lot to think about. So we spoke about, I I mean, we've touched on this all along, but I do want to hit it head on. If you now taking a step back, we talked about the role of governance, you talked about the the role of reporting. Now, if you are taking, you're talking, let's say to the CFO or to the CFO's team, and I, I would argue a little, you said most people you speak to aren't skeptical or too skeptical, probably because they're talking to you, so they at least have some level of interest in the topic. But Nonetheless, they're interested, they're kind of, you know, still focused now that they have all this reporting to do. Now you're saying there's some other thing they should be doing. But how do you help them think through from that perspective, what what their role is in, in sort of this process? So that's a really interesting question, what their role is in the process. And, and one of the things that I think about this from a technical governance standpoint, when people say, well, what committee should have jurisdiction over these issues? And there's a temptation, especially as the regulatory requirements get higher, to say audit, because audit's going to have to have a role mm-hmm. at some level. Right. I, I as, a, as a guy who used to be a board lawyer, I, I wince at that because the audit committee's gotten an awful lot of stuff on its plate already. Same thing about the CFO and the accounting function. Mm-hmm. they got an awful lot of stuff on their plate already. So I don't, I don't think it's a wise thing to create a structure in which you're saying, well, they're just going to take it on. Mm-hmm. Right. They have to be involved at some level, particularly because on the reporting side, and here I'll do my my short digression to scare oh, people. Oh, yeah, I was going to come back to socks. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, this is my short socks okay. digression to scare people. So the reason the finance function has to be in, involved, obviously, is because some of this stuff is going to have to go in your financial reports, whether they're whether in Europe or whether in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's some level at some point. Right. Some subset of this information is almost surely going to have to be in your financials. And and, and and even if it's not in your financials, your, your investors are going to care about it. Well, if it has to go in your financials. I really encourage people to think about what it was like when Sarbanes-Oxley first went into effect, right? So what had to happen, right? First off, in a way, it didn't really change things. It wasn't as though before Sarbanes-Oxley, you could put false information in your financial <laughs> right, Or you had no right? controls, yeah. Right? It's just, what, but the big thing that changed, right, is, is you had to, the CFO had to sign it. The CEO had to sign it. And the audit committee and the board had to explicitly vote to file it, right? Now, 
in, in truth, that shouldn't, if you think about it, really change the substance. In fact, it changed the way people felt. And so what did people do? They built these long chains of certifications, starting with the finance director mm-hmm. of every function in the company. They would sign a certification that looked a lot like the CFO certification and just pass it up the chain, right? So by the time the CFO had to sign off, the CEO had to sign off, the board had to vote, there was a, there was a big file with signed off documents coming all the way up the chain, right? You're going to want to do something like that here as well, and it will be harder. So one lesson, because I am mm. old enough to have been around when the Sox thing happened, um, is that the first time you tell somebody they have to sign a document that's going to go to the CFO and CEO and that, that those people are going to rely on it to file something with the SEC, some of them are going to freak out. They just will. And they're going to tell you, wait a minute, I don't have the resources. I don't have the controls in place to be able to feel comfortable signing a document like that. And you're going to have to fix that. Right. But the other reason it's going to be particularly hard is that when we did socks, everybody who had to do one of those those documents was the uh, in the finance function already, mm-hmm. right? They were all speaking the same language to each other. That's not going to be true here. You're going to have people who are signing up on greenhouse gas numbers who aren't in the finance function, who aren't used to producing data in the way the finance function produces and, and, and controls data. And they're going to be even more scared. And you're going to have to find ways to translate. You're, there's a bunch of work you're going to have to do to get there. But as a CFO, if, if ultimately you're going to say, look, I have to sign this document. And the fact is, a lot of the other people who have to sign off on it are going to be relying on the fact that I signed off. Mm-hmm. You, you want to start the process of building your certification chains early and think about it. And and I, I went down that road because that's my way of saying finance is going to have to be significantly involved. But you have to build capacity. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in a sustainability function, you could expand the capacity of the finance function and just figure out a way to manage that right you know, where you put it's going to depend a lot on the company itself. You may want to put it in the business unit function and let the business unit deal with it up to a certain level and then have the business unit CFO deal with the consolidation and then certify. Lots of different companies mm-hmm. can do it in a lot of different ways. But a really incredibly important thing to understand is that you can't ask people to say, let's just just do the ESG as your night job. Right. Right. That, that doesn't work. The people who are, are who are responsible for the other stuff that they're doing are already really busy. Um, and if you just ask them to add this on without support and without additional staffing, it will be it will fail. And I realize, as I say that to everybody, what that means for people is headcount. It means investment in systems. Um, it means money. Um, and that's not where most people's heads are at right now is not finding new places to invest money. And I get that. Um and yet, I think, given the regulatory requirements that are coming, given the importance of these issues to the business, at least in the way that I've framed it, if you have, if you buy any of what I said about why this is so important, this is the kind of thing that you have to look out and say, I have to make this investment to plan for two years out, three years out, five years out, 10 years out, because if I don't make it now, I'm going to be really behind mm-hmm. um, when the time comes. And to some extent, the regulatory pressure is forcing this already. Um, but I would really stress to people, just recognize in your people how busy they are already and recognize they're going to need more. If you're going to expand the scope of what you, you, you want to be trusted about, then you're going to need to invest in the systems and the people who help you build the transparency and the accuracy that you need to be trusted. 
Well, I'm sure there's many of our listeners that are saying, thank you for saying this should not be a night job. So, <laughs> I hope so. Um, I, hope so. I, I definitely think so. So taking a step back then and, and looking more broadly, what are you seeing as some of the benefits for companies that have put in place these types of governance structures in, you know, and how they're dealing with these issues? Well, so I'm going to say again, this is early days, so right. it's hard to know what the what the benefits are. I, I, what I would say, um, I guess what I'm going to do is talk about the projected benefits because I don't I don't know that we're far enough along yet. And before I do that, I will say I want to say one other thing. Um, the question I I often get a question: well, What are the best practices here? And this is not something that accountants like to hear, and it's not something that consultants like to say. Um, it's not something lawyers really like to say either. But I'm going to say it because it's honest. There are no best practices yet, right? In order for a practice to be a best practice, it has to have been around enough to be tested in the appropriate places where it gets tested, whether it's in court, whether mm -hmm. it's wherever it's going to be, and work. Then it becomes a best practice. Right now, it's a bunch of people trying to figure out logically what makes the most sense and do the right thing, right? That's unfortunately, that's transitional spaces create that. So the big benefits, right? I mean, the biggest benefit, I, I think, is it helps you run your company better. Right. It helps you find ways you can create value through these new forms of demand. The, the biggest, should be the biggest thing that comes at it. I, one that I think is really important to stress, though, is that um, it gives you, as a company, a principled way to say no when a new issue pops up. And particularly given the fraught nature of our current politics and the I will say it woke versus anti-woke mm -hmm. debate, right? Which I don't like. And I think is utterly inapplicable to almost every business meeting I've ever been in. I've never heard anybody in a business meeting ever say, let's invest money in that because it's woke <laughs> or, or cause it's not. I would woke. hope it's, not. Yes. It, it's just I, not part of the conversation. Have you ever met a business person that's wired that way? No, no definitely right? so not. Neither is anybody else I've yeah. ever talked to. Yeah. So, but I think because of the nature of the thing as, as we sit with it right now, um, you want to have the ability when a new issue pops up, whether it's an issue that arises out of the our device of politics, or whether it's you know a, a, tra a real tragic issue that's arose and that says, hey, society needs to respond to this, or whether it's a long-term issue that everybody's been looking at for a long time and saying, okay, we got to get a little, whatever the issue is, if it pops at you, right, you want to be able to say, um, first of all, I think when that has happened to a lot of companies of late, people have been very reactive and it's understandable. The issues come at you from out of nowhere right. sometimes and you, they're, they're so broad. There's, but there is a way to plan even for the thing that you can't predict. And that's by having a good process in place. And so what you want is a process whereby you can say to people, look, we have a process we go through to select our goals on environmental and social issues. That process engages our whole stakeholder community. And we do that because across any of these issues within our stakeholder community, there's going to be many points of view. And the only way for us to respect that diversity of points of view is to go through this process and together select the things that we're going to act on as a company. We've done that. Here's our list of three things. There are five things that we work on, and here's how we're going about them. And so focus on those. This new issue is probably real important to members mm -hmm. of our community. It's certainly real important to a lot of other people, but we're not there yet. We have to go through a process and ask our people. And if our people tell us, hey, yes, we think this is something we want our company to take action on, we will take action on it in, in exactly the same way we're taking action on these things with real goals that are measurable, will be transparent, will be accountable. But until we get there, our answer is no, we're not going to just react. We're going to have to wait and go through this process because it is the only way we can respect our community. Um, that's, I think, the answer you want to be able to give. Will it satisfy everybody? No. 
Um, will it satisfy a lot of people? Yes. And it'll satisfy the folks. It'll satisfy a lot of the folks who are in that core community of people that are responsible for building your value. And so I think it's, it's the best way in difficult times to be able to respond to something. And so I think a huge benefit of having a process is it allows you to be proactive toward the new issues as they arise. Um, and have an ability to say, no, I won't react right now. I'm going to go slower and get this right. All right. Well, that actually seems like a good place to stop. However, I always like to have a final question if there's any other thoughts that you wanted to share. No, I, you know, honestly, this has been a great conversation. And I think, I think we pretty much covered everything. I, I, will, I suppose I'll end it with, with a proverb I heard on the radio a long time ago that I really like. And it's about, it, it's very applicable to this topic. And it is that the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is right now. So it's it's I think that's an applicable proverb for this. Space. Yes, particularly given the topic we're talking about and, and very good advice, too. So, <laughs> Jamie, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Thanks so much for nice joining time. me. Bye-bye. And that's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.